Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Sota, daf tet, page nine. I'm going to start at the bottom of Amud Aleph here. There's some really interesting agadita. It's a very long daf with a lot of really interesting agadita. We can't do it all as much as we might like to. This is agadita about the Sota. So Tanur Banan, Sota Natna Ena Bimi Sheino Rauila. The the sages teach this is coming from a brighter, really a tosefta, that the sota woman um, put her eyes. There's the poetry of it. Put her eyes upon somebody who is not suitable for her, meaning somebody who's not her husband. So that which she wanted is meaning the the man, right? The other man is not what she gets. She ends up being forbidden to him. And that which she had, meaning her husband, is taken from her. Now, to be careful, this is the Soto woman who was found to be guilty, right? It's not it's not simply um, the suspicion, but she's actually found to be guilty along the process of having committed some kind of adultery in such a way that she's now not allowed to be with that man and also not allowed to go back to her husband. Shekol hanotein enav so this is just a general principle that is explained or um, derived from the principle of this Sota woman who is getting her just desserts. But in this case, so then to go on to say anybody, right? Anybody who puts his eyes, his eyes, meaning clearly not the Sota woman anymore, right? A person who puts his or her eyes on something which is not suitable for them, they don't get what they want is taken from them. It's a philosophical statement, maybe a metaphysical statement. I'm sure we can point to examples where the opposite happens, right? Where it doesn't really kick in, but as a statement of faith, I think it's, um, you know, it's about the ethics of it in a way that I think we all can relate to. So that goes on now. I'm on the top of them a bet. So we also find this with the um, the ancient snake or serpent, or I've seen different kinds of translations of this nachash, that entity in Eden in the Garden of Eden should a snake put his eyes upon that which was not fit for him, named Fava Eve, Masha Bikesh Lo Natnalo, what he wanted, meaning Eve himself, that he did not get, Umasha Biado Nitaluhu Mimenu. And that which he had was taken from him. What does that mean? Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God said, Ani amarti al-kol I, I was going to make the snake the king of all living creatures, animals, all living animals. Instead, he's going to be cursed and lowly as compared to all of them. And that's the verse in Genesis in Breshid where it says that the snake is now going to go on his belly, right? He doesn't have any legs, and he's going to eat dust all the days of his life. And that's considered, you know, the comeuppance of this Nachash, who did this this sin of seducing Eve to seduce Adam to go and eat. Of the, of, um, the, at, the, at the beginning of it, says this Gemara, the serpent was looking for something that was not his. It was not fit for him to go after her. And so therefore he was, and what he had is, so he doesn't get her and what he had is taken from him. The Gemara goes on to explain this. Ani kufa, al 
I said that the snake was going to walk upright. This is God, meaning ostensibly God, right? I said that the snake would walk upright, and instead he's going to go on his belly. I said he would eat the same food as the people's food. Now he's going to eat dust. He said, this is a you know strong midrash, I will kill Adam, Adam, and I will marry Chava, Eve. And I will put, en- so now God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your children, descendants and hers, right? Meaning not only are you not going to marry her, you're going to have, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how to, Elaborate on enmity. That seems pretty self-explanatory. We're not friends with the snakes. And the Breita continues. This Breita that's being cited in the Gemara. So all of these people, all of them wanted one thing, and then they got the opposite, right? So it lists off Cain, right? Cain, who wanted to inherit the whole world, and then he's forced to wander from place to place. Korach, who wanted the kahuna, the priesthood, and he ends up getting nothing. Bilam, who the king of Moab, who wanted Balak's money, that's a midrash there. Doeg, who was jealous of David Hamelch, King David. This is a story in the First Samuel, chapter twenty-one and chapter twenty-two. Achitofel, another person who was jealous of David. I mean, I guess a lot of good reason to be jealous of David. Um, Gehazi, who wanted Naaman's money, that's in Malachim Bet, chapter 5. Avshalom, who wanted David's kingdom. Adoniah, who also wanted the kingdom. And Uziah, who wanted to be the Kohen Gadol, the, the high priest. And Haman, who wanted to kill all the Jews. And of course, that is a very, you know, a very known story that we know where not only did he not get what he wants, wanted, he got his comeuppance because, again, he was killed instead. Um so again, all of these, they all wanted something that wasn't fit for them to have. That which they wanted, they didn't get, and that which they um, had, what they already had, was taken from them. So now the Gemara comes back to the Sota and explains, again, this kind of, this it's like a measure for measure, the the lineup of what she's done or what she was planning to do, and where her um, punishment comes from. The the sin that she's doing begins with her thigh. Thigh is a little euphemistic here. How do we know this? So how do we know this, this whole issue for the punishment? It's because we have the verse of the priest, the coin's curse, when it says that the coin is going to make this woman swear that oath, and then the priest will say to her, God made you curse, take an oath, um, you know, and God is going to then make your yerech, this word yerech thigh, fall away and your belly to swell. And that's all from Bamidbar, Numbers chapter 5. Um, One second, the verse also says their belly will swell, your thigh will fall away, meaning it sounds like it's starting from the belly, not from the leg. Again, even if it's euphemistic, the order is switched there. Um, for The first verse is um, verse 21, and then 27 switches the order. So Abai has an answer. Amar Abai, he light, light, tchila yerech, bahadar beten light. So what happens is the, he curses the woman, and he first curses 
the yarech, the thigh, and then he curses the stomach. But when the water comes, the bitter waters that come to assess her, right? So it says first the water enters her stomach and then it reaches the thigh, which is just the way of digestion, right? So the order is like A, B, B, A. The Kohen says first the thigh, then the belly, then and then the water does the belly and then the thigh. One second, we have another verse that also says, even in the curse, that it's going to talk about the belly first, not the leg first. So what happens is this verse teaches that the Kohen first tells her about the stomach, meaning that her stomach's going to be affected first, and then the thigh will be affected, so as not to cast aspersions, to not make fun of the Mayamarim, to not make fun of the bitter water. So to make very clear that the water is going to be treated with respect. And so therefore the Kohen is going to elaborate for the woman in advance exactly how the water works. And I, I'm only a little bit amused here in this phrase of not casting aspersions, not motzelas against the water, because who would think that saying thigh before belly, instead of saying belly before thigh would be to, I don't know, to humiliate the water in some kind of way. Um, but leaving that aside, the question of, or the, the Gemara's interest here in saying, this is the order that we talk about it, and it's in contrast to the order of the experience of it, I think is, it's an interesting puzzle. The Gemara wants, the sages want the order to be, to line up with the woman's experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting how they're concerned that if it doesn't go the way that it's described to her, it's almost like then you don't believe in the power of the water. Like they need to make it clear that the water is a miraculous process of the sota and the water is miraculous. And therefore, if something deviates from it, it may so doubt that that's actually true. And so they want to like really explain clearly, like how can you see this if the reverse order is actually what's going to happen? Okay, so I'm going to thank you because now I have a better understanding of Motzilag, what the concern is, not that not to mock the water, but that people wouldn't take it seriously as the event, this miraculous event that's doing the assessment. So oh, oh, I appreciate what, that. Oh, yeah, that's what I, that's what I think is happening here. Um, I right, think you're I'm, right. I'm going to move on now to a very long Mishnah. So since we were in the middle of a discussion of Mida, Kenegan Mida, right, the idea that, you know, the Sotas punish measure for measure for the sin that she did, the Mishnah wants to now give us examples of other places where this happened. So Samson followed his eyes. Remember, this is a story uh, in uh, Shoftim, um, and we'll see the rest of this stuff, and tomorrow's stuff actually spends a lot of time on Shimshon, uh, which is very interesting, because actually you would think it would appear in Nazir. Remember, right at the end of Nazir, we had that discussion about Shimshon, and this is where we get all our information about Shimshon, uh, where the Gemara spends a significant amount of time. But we'll talk about this a little bit more after we finish the Mishnah, right? So he followed his eyes, and we know what happens in him. Right? The Philistines gouge out his eyes. So they quote the actual verse where it says that, which is Judges chapter 16, verse 21. 
Absalom, right? So Absalom is David Hamel's is King David's son who rebelled against him. He gloried in his hair. Now remember, it's also interesting here. He was a Nazir alum. We talked about him a lot in Nazir as well, right? So therefore he gets hung by his hair. Um, and that appears in Shmuel Bet, chapter 18, verse 9. And because he, uh, you know, went, he slept with as part of his rebellion, uh, he had sexual encounters with 10 of his father's concubines. So therefore, 10 lances were thrust into him. Right? So it says 10 men, the bearers of Yoav's armor, circled him and they struck and they killed him. So this is, again, this is a pasuk from Shmuel, Bet chapter 18, verse 15. And because he stole three three thefts, what were they? Lev Aviv, the heart of his father, the Lev Beitin, the heart of the court, the Lev Yisrael, and also the heart of Israel. Um, and so what the idea here is, is that he, um, he basically, you know, sort of used these three, uh, when it says stole, I, I don't know, what would be a good way to explain this, Anne? Like he, Stole isn't the right word. It's it's that he sort of he tried to um, he tried to convince these people, right? He 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 sort of lied as to who he was, or he lied to them in order to get what he wanted. Okay, um, and so therefore, so therefore, three lances were also thrust into him. Right. And it says he took three lances in his hand and thrust them into Avshalom's heart. And so this is a pasuk also from Shmuel Bet, um, chapter 18, verse 14. So the idea is he stole three sets of hearts. And so the Mida connected Mida is, is his heart gets uh, pierced uh, three times. So the idea, I, this is the word I was looking for. He fooled these people. That's what it means. He, he fooled these groups of people. So now but I think that stealing also makes sense. In the yeah. sense that we have Geneva Da'at, right? The idea that you steal yeah, somebody's knowledge. Word. It, it makes sense in Hebrew. I was just trying to find an English word. Right. Like you steal someone's, right. But it, it sounds better in Hebrew than it does in the English. Okay. Um, okay. The Mishnah then goes on. Now that we've been very depressing with Sota and these examples of saying Mida Kenegan Mida is for punishment. Now the Mishnah wants to say, no, Mida Kenegan Mida can be for good too. The Chainli and the Anhatova. Right. Also with the good Miriam, him team Miriam waited for one hour with her brother. So this is the story when Moshe is born in the first parak of, of Shmot. Right. Shenemar, but It says the sister stations herself from afar. Remember, this is where she's standing at the Nile to see what will happen when the basket is put in, and then eventually Batpara rescues. One thing I just want to point out that's interesting is her name is not actually mentioned there. Uh, she is not mentioned by the name Miriam. Uh, the first time she's actually mentioned as Miriam is after the splitting of the sea when she takes the tambourine. So it's interesting. It just says Ahota, but it, it doesn't. Well, and earlier when in the very, very beginning, right? The family. Yeah, but in other words, she's not identified here as Miriam. Like it's just, it's right. I just want to point that out. But the Pasuk says here. So therefore the entire nation of Israel, right? When she dies, they wait the full seven days of her shiva in order to move. You know, they they wait in the 
desert where they were. Right, the nation didn't travel until Miriam was brought in. And this is uh, in Bamidbar chapter 12, verse 15. So again, this is Mida connected Mida for good. Another example, Yosef Zachali Kvort Aviv. You know, Yosef buried his father. And none of his brothers were greater than him. Right? So here, what they're talking about is, remember, Yaakov, before he died in Mitzrayim, asked Yosef that he should be buried in Eretz Yisrael, right? He's buried in Ma'aran and Machpelah, where Abraham and Yitzchak are. And so when Yaakov passes away, Yosef uh, makes sure that he's buried in Eretz Yisrael, and he himself actually brings him up, as this Pasuk tells us in um, in uh, Bereshi chapter 50, verses 7 and 9. Milan Ugadol, Mi Yosef, right? So uh, who's greater than Yosef? Shalonita Seiko Elamosha, only, right? Yosef was so great that who attended to him when he died? Moshe, right? And who's greater than Moshe? Moshe Zachab Atzamot Yosef, right? Moshe took the bones of Yosef. So we know that Yosef requested that he not actually eventually be, mar- be buried in Mitzrayim. And so when there was, when Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim happened, when Moshe took, you know, when he took the nation, part of what he did also is he took Yosef's bones. And so the idea is, is that because Yosef himself made sure that his father was buried in Eretz Yisrael, Moshe makes sure that Yosef is buried in Eretz Yisrael. And this is a, a Mida Kenegan Mida. Moshe Zachabat Samot Yosef, right? Moshe, uh, Moshe attended to the bones of, of Yosef. The Imbi Israel Gadom Menu, nobody's greater than Moshe. Shenem Marbe, Kaf Moshe Tatsamot Yosef, right? So here they quote the Pasuk in, in Devarim chapter 34, uh, verse 6, uh, that he took those bones. Migadomi um, Moshe, right? And so who was, and Moshe, because he did this good thing for Yosef, who attends to him? right? Then who God actually attends to his death. Right? It says he was buried, he buried him in the valley. Who's the he? It's God. And not only with Moshe did they say this, this is true of all the righteous, that God himself sort of attends to their death. Right, and so here they quote a pasuk in um, uh, Yeshayahu chapter fifty-eight, uh, verse eight, right, which says, "Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of Hashem shall gather you in." And gathering you in is a euphemism uh, for somebody dying. So the whole point here is to say that it's like a mida connected mida can be for bad, but ultimately can also be for good. So starting here, what the Gemara does is, is it does a very close reading of the story of Shimshon. And again, as I mentioned before, I think it's interesting it doesn't appear in Nazir. It appears here. Um, and it goes through many different psukim and different things that we learn about Shimshon. It's, it's pretty straightforward. The one thing that I just want to point out is um, it does quote a brisa here about Delilah, right? You know, who is ultimately is, you know, the reason why Shimshon sort of uh, loses all his strength because she finds out that the source of his strength is his hair and she cuts his hair, right? And that's the end of it. And it says the following, Tanya, right? It's taught in Abraisa, Rabbi Omer, right? Rabbi says, Rabbi Huda Nasi says, Loni Delilah, even if her name had not been Delilah, right? 
then it it still would have been appropriate that her name would be Delila. Why? The Delila et Koho, because Delila, she cut off his strength. In other words, her name means what she actually did, right? And then it says Delila et Lipo, she cut his, she severed his heart. Dildila at Masab, she severed his action. Dildila at Ko, and then it goes through the Psukim to prove all of these things. But the idea is, is that I, I was struck by this Brisa because I think it's in contrast to the Sota. Both of these are women who are depicted as sort of like enticing or leading men down a wrong path. So when we read that Brisa, uh, you know, two Dapim ago, I believe it was on seven on Zion, you know, where it described all the things that the Sota did to sort of entice the husband, you know, entice that other man, right? She stood by the doorway, she prettied her eyes, she did this, she did that. This kind of is like a parallel of like all the things that Delilah did, right? Like she, this is what she did to Shimshon and that, like, I, there's something, I, so Anne, when we were discussing this, you pointed out that you thought maybe that's why this is actually here because even though the story of Shimshon, yes, it's the Mida connected Mida, please, but what happened to him as a result of a woman, right, is sort of, you know, parallel to what happens with the Sota, right? That the Sota enticed a man and fear that she enticed Shimshon, right? Obviously through, and, and that relationship was sexual in nature. And what does that ultimately lead to? It, it led to Shimshon's uh, to downfall. So I think that this might be true of the way Chazal are kind of characterizing Dalila. I think saying that all Sota women would have been seductresses in that way is difficult for me, right? Because I feel like some of them were, you know, so yeah, so they were foolish, let's say, in not heeding that warning. But they, it's hard for me to believe that everybody who, anybody who was accused of being a Sota was actually automatically guilty. Because if that were the case, then you don't need to call them a Sota. You can just tell them, to say that seclusion alone is enough to consider guilt, right? So I want to so be just said careful. That I think is really interesting. I think this is what bothers us about Sota. You know, especially for those of us who are American, you and I are both American, and we grew up with the idea of like you're sort of innocent until proven guilty. That's not how Sota works. The assumption actually is, or the way that they treat her, is they talk to her like she's guilty, right? And the right. idea is, is that if they speak to her like she's guilty, hopefully she'll fess up so she doesn't, they don't have to erase God's name and they don't have to drink the water. And I think, and now I'm articulating for myself, I think that's what's bothering me about it. And I'm realizing, okay, that's my bias as somebody living in 2023 and, you know, sort of having grown up with this American idea of like innocence before proven guilty, that's Sota's ex the exact opposite. That is not the starting point of that process. The starting point of that process is is let's assume she's guilty, and the water. Well, at least, at least, if she life. doesn't, if she doesn't heed that warning, right? right? She's a, she's the warning means that the husband wants to bring her to task for something, and I'm not clear why she's always the one. Like, is she really is she really guilty? Except for that, she's certainly guilty of not being sensible enough to heed the warning. Maybe the warning itself, you know, maybe she figures, I didn't do anything wrong. What's the big deal? And so then that in and of itself ends up being, you know, her comeuppance. It ends up being the problem that then she's going to be 
humiliated publicly and taken to task. And then even if the water decides that she's innocent, um, she's still gone through this process that is disturbing to us. I, I think that you've hit on something sharp, yes, this idea that our premise, and I actually think that most of the time it's the Torah's premise as well, right? People aren't convicted of things until they've actually had sufficient proof yeah, and warning and everything. I think that's fair to say, but Sota seems to be a different process. And I think you're right. It's that she didn't heed the warning. She was told not to seclude herself and she still went ahead and did it. And I'll go one step further and say, what kind of woman would not have heeded such a warning? So I keep saying maybe somebody who was foolish enough, right? But the Torah or the Gemara here seems to see to say that this is somebody who is, you know, using her feminine wiles. She's there as a seductress. Her role there is more insidious because otherwise she would have heeded the warning and we wouldn't be in this story. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.